May is Women's Health Month, and so today on the podcast, we're going to learn a little bit more about the BRCA or the breast cancer gene. BRCA1 and BRCA2 are inherited gene mutations that are linked to breast cancer as well as other cancers, including ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, or even melanoma. While it's rare, nearly 1 million people in the United States are estimated to have this gene mutation, but only about 10% realize that this means they have a higher risk of developing cancer. So today I am joined with Dr. Tiffany Torstensen, or Dr. T, who's a breast surgical oncologist at Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center. She's going to talk with us a little bit more about this gene mutation, what it means, and what your options are if you find out you're a carrier. Dr. T, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. I just want to start a little bit about myself so everyone knows who I am. I practice at uh, Mercy One Medical Center here in Des Moines, Iowa. I actually did my general surgery residency here at Mercy and then did my breast surgical oncology fellowship at Mayo. And I'm in kind of my 10th year of practice as a breast surgical oncologist here. Wow. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of different things in your career. Yes, very much so. <laughs> well, let's start off with the basics. Explain to us what it means. I feel like bracket carrier are heard a lot in the news. We've heard stories of celebrities like Angelina Jolie who have this. What does it mean to be a carrier of this gene mutation? So the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, when they're functioning correctly, they're supposed to protect us. They're supposed to protect us from getting breast cancer and ovarian cancer. The BRCA1 gene is located on our chromosome 17, whereas BRCA2 gene is actually located on the chromosome 13. So they're two different genes, but they kind of do the same thing. When these are mutated and, you know, mutations can be from like a deletion or a duplication, you know, and that gets really into the genetic side of things. They're not doing their job appropriately. So at that time, it really is not functioning to protect us from getting breast cancer or ovarian cancer. And then also some other cancers, which we can talk about here. The BRCA1 gene is actually a little more severe than the BRCA2 gene just because there's a greater chance of getting a triple negative breast cancer, which is more of our breast and breast cancer. Where BRCA2 genes are kind of like you said, associated more with like prostate, pancreatic, gastric cancer, melanoma, a more variety of cancers. But both of them pose a huge risk of development of breast cancer and ovarian for a lifetime. Like breast cancer is up to a 45 to 85%. For ovarian, it's about 10 to 46% for their lifetime risk of getting one of those cancers. You kind of answered my, my next question that I had for you, which is a, a person who is a carrier, what does that look like compared to maybe a person whose genes are functioning properly? One in eight women still are the percentage of getting breast cancer. So we're talking about 12% chance versus a woman who has mutation, which is only one in 500 women will have a mutation of a BRCA1 and BRCA2. But again, up to the age of 70, they have, you know, such a high risk that's up to almost 80% in those. So wow. from 80% to 12% is a huge number. But again, it's not always those patients will get it. It's just that it's a huge percentage versus the general population. So, I mean, the only way to really find out if you're a carrier of this mutation is through genetic testing, correct? 
Yes. So there's two ways that we can test for those genes. We can do a saliva test or salivary test. We don't really like that test as well because sometimes you don't produce enough saliva, even though we think so we send it in and then it says, oh, we can't get the sufficient data. So the most um, sensitive test is probably doing a blood test for that. Depending on where you get it, who you get it from. Sometimes we do stat testing for cancer patients, you know, but it usually takes two to three weeks to get that back. So are there groups of women that are more likely to have this mutation or should should be more aware about genetic testing? I mean, I, I would imagine that not everyone needs to go out, be tested for this gene, but are there some people that probably are higher risk of developing it? Yeah. So women who are of Ashkenazi Jewish descent have a very high increased risk of the BRCA mutation. So even without family history, they um, are recommended to get testing. Any um, person who has a male relative with breast cancer is recommended to get testing because we see that male breast cancer patients have a high propensity to be usually BRCA2 carriers in that sense. And then people with first degree relatives that have like the mom, the sister, and young age of breast cancer is usually important. We get more worried when women or family members are getting breast cancer under the age of 50. Those kind of raise the red flags of testing. And then family members who've had someone with bilateral breast cancer or breast and ovarian cancer. So there is a strict criteria of who gets tested, but we know though now that the guidelines have loosened up a little bit. It used to be much harder to get testing approved but also the companies that do the testing have really lowered the price. So if you technically don't qualify for it, it's about $250 where it used to be in the thousand dollar range. Wow. That's a a big change, which I guess is good. It's making it way more accessible to people. Mm -hmm. So you, you brought something up and I, it, it kind of made me wonder. So if for instance, my mom has breast cancer and my sister tests positive for one of the mutations, does that automatically mean I will have it? Or is there a chance that I might not have it? No, you might not have it. You get 50% of your genes from your dad and 50% of your genes from your mom. And so if your mom had breast cancer and had the gene, you know, you would have a 50-50 shot of getting it. You know, unfortunately your sister could have got the gene, but you could have been spared the gene. Where that gets a little confusing sometimes, we do have a lots of mothers who come in with their daughters that have breast cancer, and they're really concerned about, obviously, their offspring and having the gene. And so usually we will test the patient with the cancer or the mother with the cancer. Now, as long as her dad, the daughter's father, doesn't have a lots of breast or ovarian cancer, then she's usually spared and doesn't require testing as long as her mother was negative. So but just because family members have it does not mean you're going to have it. Going back to like middle school science class where we learned about Punnett squares and like the genes coming down. So yeah, the different percentages on, it all comes back. <laughs> yes, it does. So let's say you do find out you have one of these mutations. You've said it yourself. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have cancer. It just means you have a much higher elevated risk of, of, of having cancer. If someone finds out they have this, this gene mutation, say it's BRCA1, you know, which is, you said the more kind of severe one, what are their options? What do you talk to your patients about? What are some things they should think about when um, they kind of come back and learn this news? 
Yeah, I think I'm going to kind of break that question down into two groups. I'm going to break yeah. it down kind of in our younger population, more in our like kind of pre-menopausal women under the age of 50, and then our post-menopausal women after the age of 50. So when I have a bracket carry come in, whether it's one or two, obviously we go over the risk and then we go over options. There's basically three options for these patients. One is increased screening, which I feel a uh, lots of women do that, especially when they're in the childbearing age. For instance, you know, I have some women in their later 20s, early 30s that maybe they're not married, haven't started thinking about children. So they kind of want to hold off on big surgeries at this point. We recommend for them is increased screening. And that means a mammogram and an MRI every year, um, followed with a clinical breast exam by a, you know, a breast surgeon or our nurse practitioners every six months. So we follow them in the hopes that we're going to pick up a small cancer, which will be easily treated. Other options is there is medication to block estrogen. It's called tamoxifen. But for women who want to get pregnant or kind of under the age of 35, it's a very difficult drug to take, but um, that is also an option. But again, that would not treat a triple negative breast cancer that we can see in the BRCA1 patients because it's not hormone sensitive. And then lastly, there is prophylactic mastectomy, which is about a 97% risk reduction of developing a breast cancer. It's not 100% because even when we do a mastectomy, there is about two to 3% of breast tissue still there. So those are kind of the options for all patients, but I feel like my women in their 40s and 50s will more opt to do the prophylactic mastectomy because it's probably the safest thing. And they've done having their children, you know, they're kind of past that point and stuff. So that's a, usually the option they choose. Women over the age of 50, sometimes the benefit of the prophylactic mastectomy goes down because it's a big surgery for them. And they've already made it, you know, maybe in their later 50s, early 60s without having cancer yet. So they might be one of the ones that might not get it. But we still would recommend if they don't choose surgery, which I'm very comfortable with them not pursuing, is to possibly go on an anti-estrogen pill like a tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, as well as screening them again with the MRIs and the mammograms once yearly and clinical breast exams every six months. So I'm sure it obviously totally depends on the patient. It depends on what their situation is, especially where they are kind of in their family planning process, whether they're kind of at the start or towards the end. I think so many people like really associate people with the BRCA gene mutation having that double mastectomy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what you're really saying though, is that is not like, that's, that's not the only option. There are other options and, you know, it's, it sounds like, I mean, I guess, yes, the, the mastectomy might be the best, what the best chance of kind of preventing cancer, but how, how do the other two compare to the mastectomy? We have to look at it in the sense of, you know, preventative and, you know, therapeutic, you know, kind of the mastectomy is kind of more of a therapeutic where we're, you know, taking the organ away. So the chances of that cancer really go down, whereas increased screening, we're just, we're not really preventing anything. We're just hoping to catch it early. And then the anti-estrogen pill would also be more of a preventative medication because it does lower that percentage about 20%. So, you know, those are options, but again, like, 
said, if you want to be the most aggressive and really reduce that chance, it is the mastectomy. The other aspect of this, what I haven't talked about is the ovary health. You know, there's not great screening for ovarian cancer. That's why we catch ovarian cancer usually at our stage three and stage four. So, you know, that is almost more of a concern to me sometimes in these patients than the breast cancer, because again, we have a lots of ways we can screen them and be preventative, whereas ovarian cancer realm, we're not there yet. So lots of women choose, especially after childbearing, you know, when they get into their later 30s or 40s to do the bilateral, you know, salpingiophorectomy to reduce the chances of getting it in the fallopian tubes and the ovaries. And that actually reduces your chance of getting breast cancer too. So that is another preventative strategy because we don't have that circulating estrogen anymore. And so in those cases, I do recommend, especially for those women who are getting in their, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s that still have their ovaries and tubes to get that out because I can't follow that very well or the gynecologist cannot. All of that though, I would imagine when you're talking with your patients about all of this, it's a lot to process. It's a lot to kind of think through. What are some of the common questions you may get or the common concerns? What are some of like the frequently asked questions, I guess? I think lots of it is timing, especially for the younger girls. I try to put myself in their shoes sometimes, you know, like, gosh, what would I do, you know, if I had that gene? And I really try to counsel them that, yes, you have this gene, but it doesn't mean you're going to always get breast or ovarian cancer and that we also have lives to live. Our breasts are a huge part of our femininity, you know, if they want to have children, you know, breastfeeding and things like that. So I try to counsel them and screen them and hold them off until they're ready because a lot of it is timing, you know, with work. If you're a teacher, when can I do this? When can I see the plastic surgeon? So a lot of it is based on where they're at in their life and also timing with work. And, you know, if they have young kids, how am I going to recover? Because bilateral mastectomy reconstruction is four to six weeks. And so it's a lots of timing counseling about risk and also protecting them at the same time. If they're like, I'm going to wait for a couple of years, which is fine. You know, it's just, what are we going to do to protect me? And so those are lots of conversations. And then also a big conversation is what about my children? I think that is one I have a lot, you know, about with them. You know, I have a 17 year old daughter. What do you recommend? How do I approach this with her? And I usually tell them, depending on, obviously there's different maturity levels for children and you can either talk to them, but at 17, we wouldn't even start screening them. So I'm kind of more the proponent, wait till they get a little bit older, where then we're going to know we're screening them. If they are really adamant about knowing then when they're mature enough to handle those results. So I think it's a really informed discussion with the child and how they are going to take this. And also based on screening guidelines, when would we even start screening them? And if they're going to worry about it, then maybe hold off until they get to that age of 25, where we're like, okay, let's know. So we can start screening at this age. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting to hear. I've heard lots of stories and I've talked to lots of people who are, you know, I'm in my thirties who are a little bit, who are around my age who are kind of finding out that they either have that they're carriers of the gene or they know somebody who is a carrier of the gene. And it's, it's interesting hearing them trying to figure out what they should do next because they don't know if they're done having families. So yeah, it's just, this has been a really enlightening conversation. If you had one thing you wanted people to take away from this from this interview, what do you think it would be? 
knowing is power. And I have a lots of patients on the fence because there's ethical implications of this. People worry about insurance. What is this going to do? But I always say knowing is power. And there, there are laws that protect this, but I think getting tested is better than not getting tested because we can protect patients better. And we have amazing genetic counselors out there that do this for a living that can really navigate the system for you. We're here to protect you. Absolutely. Well, Dr. T, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking with you. I know we covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. Yeah. But- Awesome. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show, Chelsea, anytime. I'm just here to help and educate people and protect them. Now we're going to hear from a patient who is a BRCA1 carrier. Lindsay is a Cedar Falls resident who attended Mercy One Northeast Iowa's free MAMO event in the fall of 2022. She had just turned 40 and wanted to stay on top of her annual breast cancer screening, but she ultimately wound up on a very different journey to breast health. During my mammogram, they saw that I had category four dense breast tissue, which is actually very common. At the time, I didn't really know that it was, and I was like, "Uh oh, should I be scared about this? They reassured me the tech right away. It most likely will just mean that you will need to have an MRI occasionally because the mammograms don't pick up the dense breast tissue and the lumps if there are any. So I was like, okay, that sounds fine. And then going forward, they asked about any family history. And I only knew that I had a paternal grandmother that had had a single mastectomy. She didn't die of cancer, nothing else related to that was a trigger in my mind. So I went home, they said even with just the one grandma, I would qualify to be added into their high-risk breast screening program. They sent me some literature in the mail after I got home and I got a phone call and asked if I wanted to be part of that program, which would mostly just mean more screening and just some extra care. And I was all for it. I was really excited to just be on top of it. So that meant I would have an MRI every six months, alternating with a mammogram the opposite six months. And so hopefully between the two of those, they would catch anything really early. And because I was slightly at high risk with one grandma having cancer, that was just a good good way for us to be monitoring it. Along with that though, I started doing more research. (laughs) I started asking, I think it was even that night, I texted my parents because they ask anybody in your family with breast cancer or other types of cancer, what age they were when they got cancer, what they did to treat the cancer. And so there's a lot of questions. Sometimes you don't know those things about grandparents or great aunts or aunts. And so I started texting my parents while I was sitting there waiting for the doctor and they started looking up things and trying to piece together stories and come to find out I had a lot more family history than I even knew about. I had a half aunt that died, I think before I was even born. She was young, but she died of breast cancer. And then I had another aunt that had a lump already and had some treatment. And then come to find out like extended family, like great aunts, and I had some second cousins. I basically made a spreadsheet. I made a spreadsheet, tried to keep track of how old people were when they got cancer, what type of cancer they had. It was kind of a fun project. I had a grandma that happened to be really into genealogy. So we have all these like hand typed books of family history for my mom's side. And that was really great. And I Facebook messaged some great aunts on the other side. It was just kind of a oddly fun puzzle to put together, but it's something that I wish I had done way before and just always kept track of that stuff because your doctor is going to ask you and it's helpful to know that. So I keep it in my phone now, my whole spreadsheet. So it came to be that I had a lot more family history than I even knew about. So at Mercy One, after I had my initial mammogram, I started in the high-risk screening program. That meant then alternating MRIs. I also had an appointment when I 
started the program just to kind of explain what they would be doing. And Mary there at the office was really kind. So that was really great. At the time, Dr. McMahon was there and filling in and he was so helpful and kind to me and very patient and explaining things over and over. After they saw my spreadsheet, they decided that it that I would definitely qualify to have genetic testing done. So I said yes. I did not have any hesitation in my mind that I wanted to do that. So I did it, and I really honestly didn't expect anything to come out of it. I'm not a person that has a mother or a sister or anybody very close to me that has already had breast cancer. So I wasn't necessarily the typical person on their radar. But it's really crazy because it had gone through two paternal generations. So it came through my dad and my dad's grandpa that it wasn't as apparent in my family history that we had a lot of breast cancer. So Neil McMahon suggested I get genetic testing done and I said yes. And I came back to the office and I spit into a little tube and we mailed it away. It took I want four to six weeks, I think, to get the results back. And I got a phone call that I was BRCA1 positive. After that, I got to come back in and see Dr. McMahon and we talked over options and things that we could do. I don't know if you know much about BRCA1, but BRCA1 is related to both breast and ovarian cancer. And so part of the ovarian line is potentially, do I want to have my ovaries removed to hopefully prevent me from getting cancer? The tricky part about ovarian cancer is it's very hard to screen for. So there isn't mammograms or screening tests that they can do easily. So. I chose to have a prophylactic hysterectomy to have everything removed so that hopefully I wouldn't be getting any ovarian cancer. I was done having kids. I was just really ready to just do it. I'm also having a prophylactic double mastectomy in April. It was a hard decision to weigh out the different options. I could have just been screened as far as the breast cancer goes. I could have just continued my high-risk screening and gone through that the whole way through. But when I saw that my risk for getting breast cancer, rather than 12% in the general population of women, my risk for getting breast cancer is now between 64 and 87%. It was just too high of a number for me. It was just really scary. And I, did, I would rather have my kids have me go through a surgery that I choose and is on my own time, rather than getting a lump and having chemo and radiation and having a scary surgery that I don't get to choose on my own accord. So I wanted to do it now while I'm healthy, and then hopefully I won't have to think about it much after this.